Does everyone have a message guide this morning? Anyone need one? Raise your hand if you need one. Raise your hand. Raise them high. Keep them up. Joe, can you, uh, you see some hands? Go ahead and pass those out. Thank you, Joe. Praise God. We're going to talk about the importance of obedience today. This is another one of those subjects everybody likes to talk about, right? It, it's, it, obedience rates right up there with submission in terms of what people like to hear about. Um, but, but I'm going to talk to you about the importance of obedience. And it is very important. Uh, there's a scripture in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 15:22, and it says, To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. And a, a lot of times we think obedience is a sacrifice. And I guess, I guess it can be depending on where we're at. But, but you see that the scripture uh, links obedience and sacrifice. I mean, it, it talks of obedience and sacrifice as two different things. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Amen? And so obedience should not be considered a sacrifice on our part but it really should be considered a joy. And I personally think not only a joy, but also a privilege. Um, because before we're born again, before Christ redeems us, do you realize you have no way of being obedient to God? Obedience is not a choice the unbeliever has. An unbeliever cannot be obedient to God. They can't. They're trapped in sin and death and they have no way to get out of that. So actually, when God redeems us, He gives us the privilege to walk in obedience to Him. When He takes us from darkness and translates us into light and we become children of light, no longer children of disobedience, it's our privilege to walk in obedience to Him. So obedience should never be seen as a sacrifice. It should be seen as our is our great joy, is the privilege God's given us. So let's begin here. Obedience is important because it is an indicator. It's an indicator. 1 John 4.19, I want you to understand this is a very important scripture. 1 John 4.19 gives us a principle, a truth, that we as children of God need to understand very clearly. It's a real simple scripture. We love him because he first loved us. Now, why, why did I begin with that scripture? I began with that scripture because it's important for us as we talk about obedience that you don't mistakenly believe that obedience is something that you have to do to try to get God to love you more. I'm going to say that again. Do not mistakenly believe that obedience is something that you have to do in order to get God to love you more or to love you, period. We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. God is the initiator. God initiated love. We didn't love Him. We weren't looking for Him. We were dead in our sin. And God loved us in spite of all of that. So now the next scripture is John 14, 15. The words of Jesus, ours at most before he is taken to be crucified. If you love me, keep 
my commandments. Another very simple scripture, but a very powerful scripture. If you love me, Jesus said, keep my commandments. So obedience is important because obedience is an indicator. Our obedience does not determine God's love for us. God's love should be determined. God's love should determine our obedience. In other words, because I know that God loved me in spite of myself, because he loved me first, it, it's his love for me that should determine my obedience. Obedience should be my pleasure, my privilege, my desire. Now, that doesn't mean we walk in perfection because we don't. We all make mistakes. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on here. But, but here's something important for us to understand. Christ died for us while we were still sinners, while we were still sons of disobedience. That's what Paul, that's what Paul refers to those who are not in Christ in, in uh, Ephesians 5. While we were still sons of disobedience, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Romans 5, 8 says, Jesus died for us. Christ continues to love us now. Now that we are children of God, I was a son of disobedience, I am a son of God. I was darkness, but you are light in the Lord, Paul said in Ephesians 5, 8. Christ continues to love us now as children of light, even when we disobey. Does anyone... Who here never disobeys God? Raise your hand, please. Well, at least you're all being honest. I saw someone almost raise their hand, but they thought better. <laughs> Christ continues to love us. We, we all make mistakes, right? We're imperfect people. But Christ's love for us is perfect. He loves us perfectly in spite of our imperfection. So when you disobey God, when you fall, when you stumble, and you're down in the dirt... God doesn't stop loving you. I want you to understand that as we talk about obedience today. Why would God stop loving you now when you stumble, when before you were dead in your sin and you didn't even want to obey Him, and yet He loved you? It doesn't make sense, does it? So Christ continues to love us now. I'm a little like, it sounds like I'm in a barrel or brown. I don't know what the deal is. It sounds kind of weird. Y'all hear that when I get kind of loud? So Christ continues to love us as children of light, even when we disobey. Third point here is Christ's love, in spite of our disobedience, should not produce in us indifference. Now, in your message, God, I underline this word indifference. Now, I want you to, to hear what I'm saying here. Christ's love for us, in spite of our disobedience. So you're saying, Pastor Jeff, even when I... When I behave sinfully, when I disobey God, He still loves me. Absolutely, He does. Well, then that means I can just live any way I want, right? Absolutely, it does not. So don't let the fact of God's love in, in the midst of your disobedience produce in you indifference. That you become indifferent to your disobedience. That you become indifferent to God. That you become indifferent to righteousness. That you become indifferent. Don't become indifferent. That's not the point of God's love for you. But this love of Christ, in spite of our disobedience, that should produce in us love, joy, peace, or the fruit of the Spirit leading us to what? Obedience. It's the reality of His love. It's the reality of His Spirit in us. It's the reality of our faith in Christ that should produce in us 
the very attributes that, that contribute, that lead to our obedience. So don't let the grace of God make you indifferent. And if you are truly, if you're truly a child of God and you understand who God is, even if you just have a glimpse of your salvation, of what Christ has done for you in saving you, I promise you, you're, you won't become indifferent. You won't want to become indifferent. In fact, you will want to live a life pleasing to God. Not because you're trying to earn something, but because of what He has already given us in His Son. Amen? Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything... In other words, it's not keeping the law, it's not the works of the law, it's not the works of the flesh, but faith working through love. Faith working through love. Verse 13, Paul goes on down and it says in verse 13 of Galatians 5, 4, For you have been called to liberty. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't let your liberty make you indifferent. Don't let your liberty be an opportunity for you just to live to the flesh. But instead, through love, serve one another. So we said our obedience is an indicator. Our obedience in Christ is an indicator of our love. If you love me, keep my commandments. And it's an indicator of our faith. Look at that scripture in 1 John. 1 John, chapter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Did you catch that? Everyone who loves him who begot, in other words, everyone who loves God, everyone who loves the God who begat all of us as his children also loves all of the children whom God has begotten. So if you read this letter, 1 John, you'll see that John talks a lot about love. Can't say you love God but hate your brother. You can't say, oh, I love God, I'm this, this super spiritual person, but I can't stand this person over here. I don't, I, uh-uh. You can't love God and hate your brother. If you love God, Paul says you have to love your brother too. By this we know, verse 2, that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. They're not a sacrifice. They're our good pleasure. They bring great joy, great goodness to our lives. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith, faith working through love. Love for God, love for the brethren. So our obedience in Christ is an indicator of our love and our faith. Love, faith, and obedience, they work together as one. I can't have one of those apart from the other one in reality and truth. I can't. I can't love apart from faith. I can't love apart from obedience. I, I can't do any of those things apart from one another. They work as one. Amen? So, obedience is important because it's an indicator. Second point is this. Obedience is important because it determines advantage. It determines advantage. Now, I'm gonna, we're going to look at three scriptures here. 
So our obedience is our advantage against who? Against the enemy. And that means our disobedience is our disadvantage. So if I'm disobedient, who has the advantage, me or the enemy? <laughs> the enemy does. Well, how did I come up with this? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's go there. 2 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 8. Obedience is important because it determines advantage. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, now, just a little background here. In this letter of 2 Corinthians, I believe this section of Scripture, Paul is referring to something he addressed in his first letter to the Corinthians. Remember, there was this guy who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. And he was unrepentant. And it was causing division in the church. And Paul says, this dude is unwilling to repent. He's creating divisions in the church. You have no choice but to shun him. Don't have lunch with him. Don't do anything with him. Excommunicate him from the body of believers in hopes that when he is cast out from the body, he will come to realize his sinfulness, and, and he will repent. Well, obviously, or it seems, what has happened here is that this brother, after he was cast out, he repented. And he has come back to the body. But it seems there are those in the body who still want to hold his sinful behavior of the past against him. And they're not willing to forgive him. And so this is what Paul is addressing. So let's just begin in verse 8. Therefore I urge, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. In other words, look, he's forgiven. He's forgiven in the presence of Christ. You guys need to reaffirm your love for him. Why? Why is it important to reaffirm your love? Why is it important for you to forgive him and let it be done? Because if he's forgiven in the presence of Christ, then who are we to hold anything against him, right? And so Paul says, here's why it's important, guys, for you to do this. Lest Satan should take advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. So what happens when we refuse to reaffirm our love for someone who has offended us? Or what happens when we refuse to forgive when it's already been forgiven and we're the ones holding on to this thing. Well, I'll tell you what happens. Satan is able to take advantage. That's what happens. And Paul says, you guys need to reaffirm your love. You need to forgive as he's been forgiven, lest Satan take advantage of us. So here's the, here's the problem. It, it goes beyond just how it affects us personally. There is a personal implication here. I mean, Bitterness and unforgiveness in the life of the person, of the individual, it can be physically, emotionally, and spiritually debilitating. 
It absolutely can. But beyond what it does to you personally, it also has an impact in the body. And Paul is not just talking about what it's doing to these people individually. Paul is talking about how this is having an effect in the body. Because if you guys don't reaffirm your love for him, if you guys don't forgive him, what's going to happen is this guy has no choice. He's going to be cast back out. He's going to have no place to come back to. And and it's going to be a reproach on the church and the gospel of Christ. Because the gospel of Christ is we were all sinners, we were all without hope, and God forgave us in spite of our sinfulness. And if you guys don't forgive this guy after he has repented, then you are bringing in a reproach onto the gospel and onto the church. That's the advantage. See, we, we, when we think about the enemy, we always want to think about, oh, the devil's going to get me. He's going to steal my car. He's going to steal my paycheck. He's going to do this. He's going to steal my love, my joy, my peace, you know, my health, my wealth, my prosperity. Listen, forget that. We need to get a bigger picture than just what the devil's going to do to me. Our actions, our obedience and disobedience have an impact on the church, have an impact on the gospel, have an impact on the way the world looks at us and perceives us and judges us. Now, if they want to judge us because we're fools for Christ, that's fine. But don't let them judge us because we have perverted or abused the gospel of Christ, the word of God, and we have taken what was never meant to be and and inflicted upon somebody. And this is what Paul is saying. If you guys don't love him and forgive him, Satan is going to take advantage. And we don't want that to happen. So our obedience is important because it determines advantage. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. I think I've got verse 23 down here, but Paul is talking about... Let let, let me begin reading back up in verse 20. Ephesians 4.20, But you have not so learned Christ. Listen, you're not living, walking in lewdness and uncleanliness and greediness. That's not what you learn. That's not how you learn Christ. That's not who Christ is. Verse 21, If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him, by Christ, as the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning your former conduct. Why does he say former conduct? Because he's talking to believers. And he is making an assumption here with these people. Listen, this is the way you used to live because that's who you used to be. But if you are in Christ and you've learned of Christ, in Christ you've put off that former conduct. Right, guys? I mean, that's what he's saying to them. Concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So your old man was in corruption. Your new man is created according to God in righteousness and holiness. There's a big difference there, right? So it says you guys were of the old, but now you're in Christ. So get rid of the old, put on the new. And now let's go on. Verse 25, therefore, and he brings it down to a real practical level. In the old man, in the old conduct, you used to lie to each other, cheat each other, put away lying. Let each one of you, you speak truth with his neighbor, for we were members, for we are members of one another. You see, Paul is saying, why do you want to lie to your brother? You are members of one another. 
Why, do you, why would you lie to yourself? You know, a lot of people do lie to themselves. And they, they remain in all kinds of difficulty in their life because <laughs> they keep lying to themselves. We call it living in denial. Paul is saying, look, that is former conduct. That's old man. That's, that's old nature. You're in Christ. Put that away. You are members. You're one with each other. Don't lie to one another. He says then this in verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Some of you think you can't be angry. It's a sin to be angry. No, it's a sin to be angry and sin. There is a righteous anger. I believe when Jesus overturned the tables in the <laughs> temple, I think he was really angry at what they had done to his father's house in making it a den of thieves. But he wasn't unrighteously angry. He was righteously angry. He was angry and he did not sin. So Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So we see that we are, we are commanded to put on the new man. We give no place to the devil when we put on the new man, when we live according to the new man, when we conduct ourselves according to the new man, what happens? We don't give any place to the devil. So we, hold our, we, we give no place to the devil when we do that, but when we live in the conduct of the old man, when we conduct ourselves according to the mind and nature of the old man, what we're doing is we're giving place to the devil when we conduct ourselves that way. Now, do you really want to give place to the devil in your life? You don't want to. So we put on the new man, we give no place to the devil. Go a couple of chapters over to Ephesians chapter 6. Here's where we were last week, talking about the armor of God. And part of the reason we're having this message today, or a big part, is because we're really, though you don't know it yet, we're continuing the message from last week. And talking about obedience. So Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 10. Finally my brethren be strong in the Lord. And the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to withstand. That you may be able to stand against. The wiles. The schemes. The strategy of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against principalities. Powers. The rulers of darkness of this age. Spiritual host of wickedness. In heavenly places. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, what? To stand. And so we're, we're told in this scripture, what this whole scripture is about is Paul is exhorting us to hold our ground. Why did God give us armor? So we could hold our ground. And we went through each piece of that armor and, 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 and talked about why that armor was designed the way it was to enable us to hold our ground. We stand in the truth. We stand in the gospel. We do not give. We do not compromise. We do not back up. We hold our ground in Christ. Equipped with the whole armor of God. So we hold our ground as we put on the whole armor. Standing obedient in Christ. Praying always. With all prayer, he says in verse 18, for all the saints. You see where Paul brings it together again. This isn't me by myself standing with the armor of God on all by myself facing the big bad devil. Though the picture here is an army standing as one. Now, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm going to. 
What's it called, Dave? The Centurion. No, the Eagle. Dave was telling a little bit about this movie. And, and in one part of this movie, they, what do they call it? A what? A turtle. Now, I've seen this before. You know, where, where, where the, the Roman troops get together and they, they have the shields all around them. They move as one. And they're like an, it's like an ancient tank, except it's moving with feet instead of tracks, you know. The point is this. The warfare we're commanded to wage is not an individual warfare. It is a corporate warfare. The picture given here is of an army, a body, standing as one against the onslaught of the enemy. And Paul reminds us that our always praying, praying always with all prayer for all the saints. And so when we don't do that, listen, when we don't love and we don't forgive, when we conduct ourselves according to the conduct of the old man, when we forget what we've been equipped with and why we were commanded to stand, we give advantage to the enemy, we give ground to the enemy, we give place to the enemy, and the Bible says don't do that. And so our obedience, to be obedient to the truth, to be obedient to the gospel, to be obedient to righteousness, to be obedient to all of these things, to Christ, in Christ, that obedience enables me to hold my ground against the onslaught, the advance of the enemy. So we are to obey for our advantage, which is for our good and for his glory. That word is glory, not warfare. It's for his good, for our good and for his glory. We stand for our good, yes. But ultimately, we stand for His glory. The gospel is not compromised. For our good, yes, but ultimately for His glory. The truth is maintained. We stand in the truth, uncompromisingly so. For our good, yes, but ultimately for His glory. The point of obedience is not just about our good. It is ultimately about His glory. Everything we're called to, church, everything we are, everything we are to do, ultimately is not about us and our good. It is about His glory. And we have to see that. We have to, we have to understand our lives from that perspective or we get real messed up real quick. Because if we don't understand our lives from that perspective, when things don't go the way we think they should go, we get all bent out of shape and we begin to question God and we think, oh, why did God do this to me? Uh-uh. This is not about me. This is about Him. This warfare is not about me. I'm not fighting to get me anything. No, this warfare is about him and his glory. But in that warfare, when I conduct a good warfare, guess what? It's for my good. I experience real joy, real love, real peace, real goodness. I, it, it's there. But that's not the point. That's the benefit. The point ultimately is his glory. That's the point to all things, ultimately. So obedience is important. Why? Because it's an indicator. Number two, obedience is important because it determines advantage. My obedience enables me to have the advantage over the enemy. It enables me to give no place to him. It enables me to hold my ground against the onslaught of the enemy. Obedience is important because it is the effective action of our warfare. 
Obedience is important. Now, here's the word warfare. Here's where you want warfare, right here. Obedience is important because it is the effective action of our warfare. Now, I put an adjective in there on purpose. It's not good enough that we're just fighting. We need to fight effectively. For those of you that have been in the military and you've been to basic training, you've been to boot camp, you do that because they teach you how to fight effectively. We can all go out there and fight something, but if we're not fighting effectively, we're just wasting our time and our resources and our energy, right? So obedience is important because it's the effective action of our warfare. Now, here's where we're going to take a trip right back. You're here in Ephesians chapter 6, I think. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. And the last piece of equipment that's given to us that, that we take up is the sword. You kind of, in your mind, see this soldier dressing himself in the armor, and the last thing he takes is his sword. Because, you know, you can't strap your sword on your belt and put all this other... The sword's got to go on top, you know, because it needs to be accessible. So the last thing listed is the sword because that's the last thing that that soldier's going to take up and, and affix to himself. And it's the only piece of offensive equipment that, that is listed here in this armor. So Ephesians six seventeen And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. We all understand that, right? Now, we need to also understand that the Word of God doesn't just represent some bunch of dead words on paper with ink. This is the written Word of God, but this written Word of God is to reveal the living Word of God. The powerful, this Word is powerful, but it's powerful because of who it represents, because of who ultimately is the Word. Who is the Word? Jesus is the Word. So we need to always keep that in mind, that this isn't just a book with a bunch of neat stories that we learn cool moral lessons from. This is a book that communicates to us the very nature and character and essence of the living, sharper than a two-edged sword, powerful Word of God, Jesus Christ. If you read that, if you read that uh, passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, we won't do it now because we don't have time, but read it sometimes. You'll see that the writer uses a personal pronoun there, he, he. He refers to the word as he. Why? Because he's referring to Christ. Because you can't separate Christ from his word here. So this is what we're talking about. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It is the word of God that has been given to us. The only offensive weapon. In obedience to the word, we overcome the enemy's strategy. Remember, that we might stand against the wiles. That word wiles means strategy, mode of operation. The gates of hell shall not prevail. Not just physical barriers, but the gates, that's where the strategy was developed. The strategy of the enemy will not prevail against the church. Paul reaffirms that right here. We stand in the whole armor of God against the strategy of the enemy. So let's consider the greatest model and example that's ever been given to us. I hate to even use Jesus in that terminology, but let's go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. 
Verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So from Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through verse 11, we see that Jesus is, has been in the wilderness for 40 days and he is tempted by the devil. And three times recorded in Scripture, this, the devil comes to Jesus to tempt him. You're hungry, Jesus. So the devil says, turn these stones into bread. Jesus' response, it is written, or we could say the word says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then he takes Jesus and he shows him, says in verse 5, the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written. Now, this, now Satan is quoting the word to Jesus. <laughs> Satan is quoting the word to the word, okay? And so he says, hmm, my temptation against his hunger, his flesh, didn't work. So let me see if I can trick him with some scripture. This is why it's important, church, for you to know the scriptures. Because don't think the enemy is not beyond using the word of God to try to deceive you. If he did it with Jesus, he will do it with you. So he says, he shall give his angels charge over you. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. What do you think about that, Jesus? Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You notice what Jesus didn't do? It doesn't tell us he didn't do it, but we understand that he didn't do it. He didn't turn rocks into bread, and he didn't jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Third temptation, he takes him up on a great and high mountain and he shows him the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all these things I will give to you, Jesus, if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall not worship the Lord your God and him alone, him only, you shall serve. He quoted the scripture again. And he did not bow down and worship Satan. What I want you to see here what I'm, not, what I'm saying is, the point, the reason Jesus was able to overcome the temptations was not just because he quoted Scripture. More importantly, it was because he obeyed the Scripture. Amen. Jesus could have quoted all of these Scriptures and been disobedient, and the Scripture would have meant nothing. This is where we need to be careful that Scripture is not a magic formula for us to quote and say, and everything's going to be okay. It's not. We take too many of these scriptures out of context and think, oh, I've spoken the word over it, so it's got to be okay. Now listen, what's important here to understand is Jesus quoted the word of God that he was obedient to. He quoted the word that he obeyed. The word void of obedience is the word void of power. You know why Jesus is who he is and who we worship today and who is our Savior and our Redeemer? Because he walked in what? Perfect obedience. Now, you and I can't do that, but Jesus did it. So that's why we don't put our faith in each other. 
or in, in ourselves, we put our faith in Christ because he was the word of God who was in perfect obedience to that word. And it's important for us to understand that our obedience is important because this is the effective action of our warfare. Let's look at another one, James 4, 7 and 1 Peter 5, 9. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourself to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5, 9 is the culmination of this little section of Scripture where Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. That's the scripture where, God, where Peter says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And it goes on in verse 9 of 1 Peter 5. And Peter says, resist him steadfast, how? In the faith. Resist him steadfast in the faith. So submit to God, resist the devil, steadfast in the faith, and he will flee. That's the promise of the Scripture. But, but do, you, do you understand this very simple and logical thing here? You cannot resist the devil if you will not submit to God. Or we could say it like this. You cannot resist the devil if you will not obey God. To obey God is to submit to God. To submit to God is to obey God. First John 3, 8 and 9. For this purpose was the Son of God manifest to destroy the works of the devil. And what is the work of the devil? It is a work of sin and disobedience. We see the first recorded work of the devil right there in Genesis. We see him in action right there. And he took the words of God to Adam and Eve and he twisted them and caused them to believe a lie. His work there was a work of sin and disobedience. His point in lying to Adam and Eve because he wanted Adam and Eve ultimately to do what? To disobey God. So Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil whose work is sin and disobedience. Victory in Christ is not void of our obedience to his word and his spirit. Victory in Christ is not void of our obedience to his word and his spirit. I can't say I have victory in Christ and go out there and live like a son of hell. 1 John chapter 3, if you go there, let's go there. And we're going to end there. This is what John is affirming here in his letter. So, for instance, look at 1 John chapter 3 and look at verse 4. I have a New King James Bible, and my Bible says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Does anyone else have another word there? Is there another word? Practice. Practice is actually a very good translation of that Greek word. Commit is not incorrect, but we've got to understand. I can commit an act, and it may be a one-time thing. I can't practice something, and it be a one-time thing. You guys understand that? 
I can, I, I can go play golf one time, but if I really want to be good at it, I can't just go play one time, right? I need to practice. I used to be a tennis player. So you can't just go out and play tennis one time and be good. You need to practice. This is what this word means. All right, That word there in verse 4, commit, means to practice. It means to habitually practice, to do something as a practice, habitually. What's interesting, if you go down to verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness, it's just that word practice there. You see commit in verse 4 and practice in verse 7, but it's the same word in the Greek. It means the same thing. Actually, if you come to verse 8, he who sins, that word sins, it, it, it is in the structure of the original language, it is the thought, he who habitually practices sin. That's what it means. It's not, I made a mistake yesterday, I guess I lost my salvation because I sinned. Uh-uh, that's not what it's saying. It says, he who habitually sins is of the devil. Verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not habitually practice sin. For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Verse 10, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. How? Whoever does not habitually practice righteousness is not of God. John says, here's how we know who's of God and who's not of God. Who's a son of God and a son of the devil. Those who do not habitually practice righteousness are not of God. If you make unrighteousness and disobedience and sinfulness the habit of your lifestyle, I'll just tell you like Paul told the Corinthians, you need to examine yourself and see whether you be in the faith. Now, I'm not trying to be hard. I'm just speaking the truth in love. I'm trying to be honest with you. I'm not talking about we all make mistakes. We all, we all fail. We're frail, failed human beings. But what is the practice of your life? What is the desire of your heart? Do you just want to go out and live like hell because that's what you want to do and you think the grace of God's got to cover you because uh -uh. that's not what the Scripture teaches. This is what the Scripture is teaching us here. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor, look at this, nor is he who does not habitually love his brother. You see where John equates practicing righteousness and loving your brother? He, he doesn't draw any distinction there. And that is the tone in this whole letter. He's, he says, dude, you cannot say you love God and hate your brother. You can't say you habitually practice righteousness, but you are habitually hating your brother. Those are inconsistent. You better examine yourself because that is not consistent with who God is. Who is God? God is love. So we see here that Jesus came to destroy, verse 8, he came to destroy the works. For he who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, verse 8, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Who ha whoever has been born of God does not habitually practice sin, for his seed remains in him. Jesus came, listen, we were trapped habitually in sin. We were trapped habitually in death with no escape. Jesus came to deliver us from that. And so what we had no choice in doing before when we were sons of disobedience, 
we actually have a choice and it is our privilege now to love and to walk free from that sin and that disobedience. Who gave us the power to do that? Christ did. You did not and you don't have the power in yourself to do that. Christ has and continues to give you the power to do that. So this is why I say victory in Christ is not void of our obedience to his word and his spirit. If I am claiming I am victorious in Christ, then the practice of my life needs to be obedience to his word and to his spirit. We conduct no warfare and have no resistance to the enemy apart from obedience. Our warfare and our weapons are spiritual. Oh, I've got to take you to one more scripture. I'd be, be terrible if I didn't do it for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. This is consistent with Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11. We walk in the flesh, but we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not of the flesh, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. These strongholds that we're pulling down, these imaginations, these arguments, these thoughts, these are not demons floating around in the sky. These are strongholds that exist in our mind. Because here's what Paul says to us here. He says, bringing every thought into captivity, what that literally says in the Greek is you have the authority to arrest and incarcerate every thought and command it to obey Christ. That is the authority you have as a believer. See, if we stay focused on things floating around up in the air, but we never pull down the strongholds in our mind, take captive our thoughts, arrest them, incarcerate them, and make our thoughts obey Christ, you know what's going to continue to happen? We're going to continue to act out based on our thoughts. And if our thoughts are disobedience, if our thoughts are darkness, if our thoughts, thoughts are according to the former conduct of the old man, guess what my actions are going to be? My actions are going to be according to the conduct of the old man. So it's important for us, by the power of the Spirit of God, to take captive our thoughts. I mean, lock those things up and don't let them run around loose in your mind and make them obey Christ. Well, how in the world do I do that, Pastor God? Well, you, I'm Pastor Jeff. <laughs> how in the world do you do that, Pastor Jeff? Well, you're not going to do that. You're not going to do that if you're not... If you're not in the Word of God, you're not going to do that by filling your mind with other things. And so, the washing of the water of the Word of God, wash your brain with the Word. Wash your brain with the Word. As you wash your brain with the Word, you bring your thoughts into captivity. As you wash your brain with the Word, you incarcerate them. As you wash your brain with the Word, you make your thoughts obey Christ. As you wash your brain with the Word of God, you cause those strongholds that exist here 
to be pulled down, utterly destroyed, and brought to nothing. You do. And it's through that renewing of the mind that we are able to walk in obedience. And our obedience is our effective action in warfare. How does the enemy come against us? He tempts us to sin. He, how, what did he do to Adam and Eve? He didn't kill them. He didn't physically assault them. He didn't scare them. He came to them very innocently. I believe probably was, was nothing threatening about him. But his words were utter deceit and an utter lie. And he tempted them to do what? To disobey God. How does he come against you? He tempts you to live disobedient to God. How do you counter his warfare? You stand firm. You stand against. You hold your ground and you don't give in. And your obedience is the effective action against his assault against you. I posted this the other day on Facebook. The enemy can't make the believer do anything. He can only suggest. And he can and he does suggest. But whether you take him up on his suggestion, that's your choice. That's his warfare. He is suggesting things to you all the time. Don't fall for it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Hebrews 5, 9, having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 1 John 3, 23, and this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. To obey is better than sacrifice. As much as an act of our will, obedience is an attitude of our heart. It really starts in our heart and in our mind. And that really is what determines how we walk out our life. You might be struggling today with an issue, with a problem in your life. You might be a slave to something that you know God doesn't want you to be a slave of. The point is not for you to beat yourself up and to condemn yourself. What, what is your heart? If your heart is, I only want to be a slave to God, that, that's where our heart should be. God will give you the power to present your members as slaves of righteousness unto God. Well, well, Pastor Jeff, what if I don't do that? What if I, you know, I blew it last night and I presented my members as a slave to sin? Well, the good news is God still loves you. He's still for you. He's not against you. You, you stumbled, get back up. Get back up. Well, I've stumbled about 557 times. I don't care how many times you stumble. Every time you stumble, you get back up. You get back up. You have the assurance of what the Word of God declares. You have the Spirit of God. You're not going to defeat anything in your own power according to your own will. You're only going to defeat it by the power of the Spirit. But you're not going to defeat it just because you want it to be defeated. And you're not going to defeat it just because you quote a bunch of Scripture, but you still choose to live in disobedience. 
Somewhere the rubber's got to meet the road. Somewhere we've got to begin to walk this out. And even if it's little bitty tiny steps, I begin to practice righteousness. I begin to practice a lifestyle consistent with the nature of Christ, the new man. And this is why we need one another. This is where we got to lay down our pride. Just like Amy did last week. She laid down her pride and she said, I need prayer to overcome something that's been in my life for two decades. Sure. Yeah, this is why Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation. That's not our license to continue in a sinful lifestyle. It's our assurance that, listen, God's not condemning you. You might be condemning yourself, and the only reason you're condemning yourself is either because you don't have correct knowledge of the Word of God or you're listening to the, to the wrong voice. Amen? Amen? Let's all stand. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer of dismissal, and if you're here today... And you say, you know what, I'm really battling with some things in my life. And I have been walking more consistently with the conduct of the old man than I have the new man. After I pray this prayer of dismissal, I would invite you to come and let's pray. Let's pray a prayer of agreement for you to have the power of these things broken over your life. But the power of these things broken over your life, is, is, that's not a magic thing that's going to happen. What's the, probably the most powerful thing is that you've swallowed your pride and you've come forward and said, I've got a problem. And in your humility and your acknowledgement of your need for God, you're saying, I want to begin to walk according to the new nature. Now, you're going to have to walk according to that nature. And you're going to have to submit yourself to brothers and sisters in Christ who will lovingly hold you accountable and walk with you. Amen? Because you're not going to do this by yourself on your own. That's why our warfare is not individual. Our warfare is corporate. We are a body. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you today for your word. And Father, I pray right now that, Lord, the word of God that you have given to us, Lord, that you have revealed to us, Lord, it is sharp, it is powerful, dividing down to the very bone and marrow, Lord, exposing the very intent of our heart. Lord, that's not for our condemnation. That's for our healing, Lord. It's for our restoration. I pray, Father, today that as we leave this place, we would leave, Lord, hopeful that we would leave understanding the privilege that you've given to us to walk in obedience for our good and for your glory. Lord, I pray for your people today, for all of us, Lord, that we would not see ourselves standing alone, but we stand in Christ in the power of His might, and we stand together, praying always with all prayer for all the saints, for your glory, Lord Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Tonight in here in the sanctuary, Michelle Flippin's Bible study next door will be Not I But Christ. If you want prayer for anything, please come and let us pray.